I think that what we're talking about is conflict and there is a way to switch between different types of conflicts so that, um, yeah, like he might be out of physical danger. There might not be bullets flying, but now he's at a place where there is danger to his emotional well-being, to his family, his uh, his girlfriend, um, and and his business. So keeping that conflict there and keeping the story moving forward uh, is really important. Welcome to JCV Art Studio. I'm Joanna Vanderfluck, the author of The Unraveling and Dealer's Child. And this is, if you haven't guessed it, my podcast. Today's author, his books, I've been reading his latest, and it is hard to put down. Um, his writing is gritty, it's authentic, and he gives the reader... Um, just a great sense of living on the streets of Vancouver, okay? Um, he is an award-winning Vancouver crime writer. Um, he is the author of the Wakeland novels, and his name is Sam Weeb, and he's going to be talking with me. Now, Sam's work has won the Crime Writers of Canada Award and the Kobo Emerging Writers Prize. He is being shortlisted for the Edgar, the Hammett, the Seamus, and City of Vancouver book prizes. And today, yeah, we're going to talk about his latest novel and his David Wakeland series. And forgive me, people, I haven't had my coffee yet, so I feel like I'm stumbling along here a little bit. But anyways, his latest novel, David Wakeland is his protagonist. And it is hell and gone. Sam, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Joanna. I'm thrilled to be here and uh, happy to talk to you about uh, hell and gone. Good. All right. So the thing I noticed with it is um, it's really, I, would, I don't want to say it's really easy to read, but it's just, it's so smooth to read. The, the words are so smooth and so put together. It, for me, it's an effortless read. And um, I feel like I'm peeking in on your characters' lives and, and what's going on. Now, I don't know if, if you've heard this, but I've heard this, that uh, kind of like the golden rule of writing is the author does all the work so the reader doesn't have to work at reading what you've written. 
So I'm thinking, with Helen gone, did you go through many drafts? Um, do you plot? Do you just write on page whatever comes to you and then like uh, rewrite, rewrite, rewrite? Like how do you, you go about crafting your novels? Well, first of all, thank you for the uh, the compliments. Um, I, I really appreciate it. And that is the desired effect. Um, I think it was Hemingway who said that when you start writing, you get all the the kick, all the fun, and the writer gets or the reader gets none of it. And as you become more of a professional and figure out what you're doing, that that kind of reverses, so that it's the reader who's getting enjoyment. And that that is something that I work on. Um, I go through a ton of drafts, usually at least three or four before it gets to my agent. Often the agent has a couple of notes. Then it goes to the editor and then the copy editor. So you're you're looking at something that has been revised quite a few times. Um, and I don't, I mean, I don't plot or outline to the extent of having everything figured out, but I come up with what I call a beat sheet, just sort of a rough idea of where the story is going, what emotional uh, points I want to hit, and um, and then I just sort of let it try to unfold. And that's um, sort of in between those two terms that we're trying to avoid. Um, I've heard the term plotzer for that sort of in-between work. And uh, it's even worse than plotter or pantser, but um, seems to fit my work. I don't think I could ever say that word plotzer with a straight face. Okay, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So, okay. So Helen Gone is the third Wakeland novel. And again, so our listeners know, Dave Wakeland is your protagonist. And what I liked is that I picked up book three and I'm with this character. And even though it's part of a series, it's still a standalone novel. Um, I'm not reading it thinking, oh, oh, is this something that's explained in book two or book one? There's none of that. So... And it's good. I like it as a reader because I'm, 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 I feel like I know what's going on with this guy, even though I haven't read book one and two. So do you feel you gain more as an author having these, having standalones in a series? Cause I sure think you do. Yeah. And there's always a, uh, a balance to be struck between um, a series that is cumulatively enriching so that if, if you've read the first two novels, Invisible Dead and Cut You Down, uh, Helen Gone will have a, a little bit more of a, an emotional resonance, but it also has to be an entry point for people who haven't read those. Um, and I don't think that I can be arrogant enough to assume everybody is going to read everything I've done. Um, and I also think that that's one of the great things about detective novels is that they're read by diehards. They're read by people who have only a passing interest in the genre. They're read by people who need something for an airplane or a train ride. I mean, it, the, the audience is, is varied. So having it something that you can pick up and immediately figure out who this guy is and what's going on, that's really important to me. And I also think that this is the best of the series. Uh, as far as its readability and as an entry point. I mean, I would actually start with this and then go back. Really? Okay. Okay. That's interesting. Okay. Well, and also with this guy, I feel like I'm, I'm learning 
like you little like a little bit more keeps getting revealed with him you know and that that's 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 really cool um so okay before we go further can you tell us what get, like give us i know authors hate this question but just a, a, a small summary of what helen gone is about absolutely so i'll start by just explaining that dave wakeland is like the modern day jim rockford of the rockford files or Philip Marlowe, if you like old detective novels. I mean, he's somebody who is an underdog, someone you'd want in your corner if there's trouble, someone who's tough, loyal, reasonably handy with his fists. And Dave is one half of Vancouver's top private security firm. Um, so he's somebody who's seen just about everything. And then Helen Gone drops him into a situation that he hasn't seen before. There's an act of public violence which breaks out uh, on the street in the early morning, and Dave witnesses this. And he gets a look at the shooters as they drive off, and he leaps into action as any great detective hero would. Uh, So he actually literally jumps out the balcony of his office, runs down to perform first aid for the wounded. Um, So he's a hero. And then he goes that one step further. He enters the building where the shooters have come from, and he sees something in there that is so beyond his experience that when the police ask him what he witnessed, Wakeland just refuses to say. He almost shuts down. And soon he's caught between the criminals and a police chief who wants this solved and another rival gang, all of whom want these shooters uh, dealt with and for Dave to sort of take an active role, no matter the cost. And the only way for him to come to grips with this is to find the shooters before they find him. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. the best I can pitch it at this point in the morning, but yeah, I hope that works. Oh no, that's, that's perfect. Cause I'm thinking of the scenes as you're, you're talking about it. Um, yeah. Cause there's immediate action with that. Like the, we, we walk, we open that, that book to immediate action, immediate action. And, uh, God, I'm just, I have to say it. There's that scene where you, you talk about the blonde lady who just turns and she has this gun. Like it's, it's more than a gun. It's like this rifle. Okay. And how you worded it. It's just, I saw it, you know? And yeah. So you start with the immediate action of this shooting. And so it, I, it's like a roller coaster. Vroom, we're in, and then I think I always think that okay. Then the neater, the the neater. See what happens when you don't have your coffee in the morning. The re, <laughs> the reader, I always think needs to catch his or her breath, and then we got to take them back up again. So I was wondering, how do you, you know, because you don't want to lose. I always think to, for myself, you don't want to lose them when you kind of get allow them to catch their breath. So how do you, do you like start up again? Well, I think that what we're talking about is conflict and there is a way to switch between different types of conflict so that, um, yeah, like he might be out of physical danger. There might not be bullets flying, but now he's at a place where there is danger to his emotional well-being, to his family, his uh, his girlfriend, um, and, and his business. So 
keeping that conflict there and keeping the story moving forward uh, is really important. So once he's out and trying to recuperate, um, his police officer girlfriend comes home and sees him and he's having a very hard time explaining to her what he's seen. And he's sort of lapsing into old bad habits like smoking. And we get the sense that it's going to be very hard for him to establish some sort of emotional connection with her and, and explain just why this was so traumatic. Um, So I think that that's what I try to do is just modulate from different types of conflict. And, um, you know, as long as there's stuff that he wants, stuff that he's prevented from doing, and as long as there's this mystery of who are these people, why did they do this, and how will Wakeland uh, catch them, um, I I think that that allows the story to go into more, more character stuff. Good, good. Well, and I also find that the reader, the reader experience, because in the beginning, I'm in my head, I'm thinking, talk to the cops, talk to the cops, talk to the cops, right? <laughs> because I'm reading <laughs> in the beginning. And then at, in that, as you progress, you're like, ooh, ooh, well, maybe don't, don't talk, <laughs> don't talk to the cops, right? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And the other thing I liked is, like, learn, like the tension and the character and how you show him in shock. And it's, it's that opening scene again where he, Dave witnesses this, this awful, this cold-blooded shooting. And what I liked was, like, you don't say, you know, like, oh, he was in shock. Maybe in draft, you know, one, okay, or like a note to yourself, he's in shock. But what I liked what you did was it was just the simple action he sees what plays out and you say his shoe drops from his hand and because he's thinking, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go out there. And then his, like, I loved that. His shoe drops from his hand and then boom, he's out the window, you know, and like it did, it, it made me think about, okay, if you were in that situation, you know, you may have say something like, oh my God, but it's, it's pure, it's adrenaline that's, that's kicks in. Would, would, would you say? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I did at uh, the school where I worked was take a St. John's ambulance course and they drill into you, uh, you know, certain mnemonics and uh, procedures for, you know, if you come across somebody who's injured, I mean, there's a famous uh, mnemonic ABC, right? Airway, breathing, and cardiac. So you make sure the airway is clear, you make sure the person is breathing, and then you make sure that their heart is pumping. And, um, uh, you know, the reason why they drill that stuff is because if you're in that situation, you're not going to be able to think and recall it. You have to just start, you know, relying on muscle memory and, long-term memory and like your training. So that's what Dave does uh, initially. And I think also um, real heroism, I think is made up of those small moments, like deciding to go out there, acting, you know, phoning the, uh, the ambulance, doing what you can for the people, making those split decisions. All of that stuff is to, to me, that's heroic. And I wanted to show that before getting into the the stuff where he kind of gets in over his head. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that leads me to my, my next question is uh, your work. 
reminded me, like I was a, of Dick Francis. Okay. Um, like I, my influences were, were, they were all the UK authors. Um, Agatha Christie, Minette Walters, Dick Francis. I read a few of Ian Rankin's, but I read just about everything Dick Francis wrote. And I remember his early books where he had the, you know, the, the guys at the track, the racetrack, the jockeys, and it, it, it was gritty, you know, and it was just something I'd never read before. And now when your character, Terry Rhodes, comes into the plot, that's when I, I like, it made me think of Dick Francis. Okay. Like it just, that grittiness. So I was wondering <laughs> how or why have you gravitated to like gritty crime novels? Like, did it have something to do with who your reading influences were? Um, definitely. I mean, the two things that underpin the Wakeland series are trying to update and contemporize the detective novel, right? The classic private eye, lone wolf detective novel into 2022. So it doesn't seem ridiculous. Like I really didn't want to have a guy running around with a trench coat, you know, with a lot of women with shoulder pads and standing in front of blinds. Like I, I wanted to move away from the cliches and get to what it is about that style of novel that resonates for me that looks at social problems and class and violence and, and mixes all those together. And then the second influence is the city of Vancouver. And then the social problems that are going on there with substance abuse and um, racialized and uh, gendered violence, things like that gentrification, which is a huge one in Helen gone and um, and corruption and problems with systems in society. Um, so mixing those two things together, it just comes out gritty. I, I really think of them as more realistic mm -hmm. crime novels. Um, I also love Agatha Christie and Josephine Tay and the whole golden age of mystery writers. Um, and that's definitely an influence, but my heart lies with the detective novels. So like you mentioned, Ian Rankin, I, I love him. And um, one of his influences was a writer named William McIlvaney, who had a character named uh, John Rhodes, who was one of the bad guys in the story. So I, I kind of cribbed the name from there. <laughs> okay. Okay. And like, it, besides it being, you know, realistic and gritty that, you know, your character, Dave has like, he, he has revelations, he has conflicts and like I said, in my head in the beginning, I am literally saying, talk to them, you know, like then that's, I think is amazing. If you can get your reader say, saying, talk to them, like for Dave to talk to the cops, right? You know, um, so I was wondering if any of Dave's inner conflicts, you know, anything or any of his conflicts, internal, external, have they been based on any real life experiences for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think definitely there's an element that's drawn from real life. Um, I have personally had really good responses from the police, but they're overall in the last few years, I, I think in Vancouver, there's been uh, 
a distance created between the authorities and the average person. So I wanted to reflect that a little bit in the story. There isn't this bond of trust and social goodwill uh, as much as there was. And I think that that's the fault of various things, but um, uh, that's definitely part of it. And then personally also, um, you know, just, just trying to process what he's seen and, and figure that out. Um, yeah, there's, there's sort of a period where I was really burned out at work and just saw a couple of very horrible things and was kind of processing them. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, all that stuff is sort of either drawn or inspired from, from real things. Well, thank you for sharing that. Well, what I found in the book, there's a scene, and this kind of, to me, reflects the realism of it. I've been caught walking around our house, pretending my hands are tied around my back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that needed, you know, a bit of explaining. <laughs> and um, my spouse has seen me doing uppercuts in the air. I used to be a fitness instructor. Okay. So I, I kind of, you know, the kickboxing, you know, I know it's not, you know, so, but like, I'm trying to do motions, right? Again, required a little bit of explaining. Um, now, the scene when Kent, another character, I'm not going to give away who this person is, but you know, our readers are going to figure it out. Kent ties Dave to a chair with zip ties, and Dave's trying to break free. And as I read that, I have to admit, I thought to myself, I wonder if Sam got tied <laughs> up to a chair because <laughs> it was so realistic. Uh, you know, it wasn't something where you'd see in, I'm going to say it like a Tom Cruise movie where he's able to then like slip a, a knife down his arm and cut the, the ties. Okay. Like it, it was very realistic. So I wanted to know, how did you come up with that scene? Did you stage it? Did you say to your friends, okay, get a pair of zip ties and tie me to a chair? Like, just how did it come about? <laughs> um, well, I don't know if I want to give away whether I did it or not, but I will <laughs> say that um, from what I've found out, the trick with zip ties is to snap them. Like if you're, if you're tied in front, the, uh, the thing they say is to bring your knee up and pull your arms apart very quickly. The thing with Dave being tied up in that scene is that um, it's not so much that he wriggles free, free or does some sort of, uh, you know, clever escape route as he just breaks the chair. And that's, that's definitely something that I think everybody has, has done. Yeah. Um, so actually like ripping or rocking this thing to pieces uh, as a way to escape. It also shows that the person tying him up is not, not intent on, you know, tying him there so that he, he rots. I mean, this is just to affect an escape for, for Kent. It's not to, you know, permanently disable him or anything. Yeah. And I think that I just, I know there like a pen, a pen gets used and I have my thoughts about the pen, but I'm not going to say them now because I don't want to spoil anything. I'm going to keep them to myself because I only I only have a few more chapters left. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, I say there are many 
style than Vinny. You mentioned beats, right? And I think there are many style points I like with your writing. Um, but one thing I really liked is it's how you start a new, new a new chapter. Now it's not every chapter, right? Because you know diff it's how the the story unfolds. Um, but what I liked, I guess, the one that really stood out for me, like some of the chapters you start and you're immediately engaging one or more of the five senses, you know, to place the reader in that scene. Right. And I've gone for dim sum many times in Victoria and that scene, oh my gosh, like, <laughs> like when the waitress comes over and she checks off the items, you know, that they've, they've, you know, ate and it, yeah. So do you want to share any thoughts about that? Like, you know, I, I love it when people use authors use the five senses, five senses. Yeah. I mean, I just try to represent aspects of the city that I think are cool and that people maybe don't, uh, don't think about as much. And, you know, like you, I love dim sum and I love the whole experience of going and, you know, the checklist, the scissors to cut uh, beef noodles and things like that. I mean, I just find it really fun. So using that and then having the subtext of that scene being this really serious conversation where one of the people is actually kind of laying a trap for the other. Yeah. Um, I, I think that that juxtaposition worked yeah. pretty nicely if I do say so myself, but um, uh, with, with sensory uh, details in general. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's really important. And um, those are the things that people, I think when they're starting to write that they maybe leave out, they don't really immerse you in those scenes and uh, they gloss over that stuff. So showing the reactions of, um, you know, what's fun about this, what, what are people into? And then using that uh, to stage the conflict, I think is more effective than just sort of, yeah, we were having dim sum and I brought up blah, 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 or, or whatever. Yeah. Put, put the reader in the scene. Yeah, for sure. And I remember going to a writer's workshop once and uh, the person who was speaking had said, I guess her pet peeve, this author, and I, I can't remember who the author was, but she had said, when I pick up a book, she goes, you don't have to go in great description, but tell me what the weather's like. <laughs> that would really bugged her. She goes, just, I want to know. Is it fall? Is it winter? You know, she goes, is it raining? You know, and it, yeah. So just in what she was saying is just like, give us some context of our, of the scene we're in. Right. So. Yeah. One last story specific question. Now there's this scene when Sonia, who's Dave's partner, she comes home after having a meeting with the deputy chief constable. And the reader's reading that she gets promoted, okay? And it all, at first it all sounds good, but then we are, you reveal to us through her the real reason why she's being promoted. And it's not really, it's not a good reason. And it leads me to wonder when you, cause you, you touch upon issues, okay? And when you started this novel, did you know ahead of time you wanted to tackle, let's say, XYZ issue or through your writing process, did your characters 
reveal these issues to you? Well, a little bit of both. Um, I mean, I think one of the issues in the story is is um, institutional violence, like how how institutions react to violence, how they react to getting what they want or not getting what they want. And, you know, what happens with Sonia is she gets promoted into public relations. She is a, you know, young, attractive brown woman. And that's a real coup for any group to have that as their spokesperson, especially when you're dealing with the public. Uh, but that's not what she wants. She wants to be a homicide detective. And without giving anything away, that plays a huge role in the fourth book. Um, so, yeah, I did want to talk about that. And um, in in something that's a little bit similar, when my mom was ready to retire from uh, where she worked, I noticed that in the last year or so of her career, there started being all these weird little things of, oh, now you're working night shifts. Now you're working in this less safe environment. Now your branch is being you know, consolidated with this other one. Oh, wow. And, you know, I don't know that there was some really evil boss pulling the strings for that. Part of what makes that kind of stuff so malicious is that you don't know. You don't know if that's being done to you or they just don't care about you. But it's that fact that it's better for the institution to have people not reach retirement age and doing something like that to, to keep a, you know, working mother with three kids, uh, you know, from reaching her pension. I mean, to me, that's like unconscionably cruel and, and mean spirited, but yeah, reflecting a little bit of that in the story was definitely important. Um, and, you know, as you, as you write and revise, you, figure out what you want to say and highlight those things in the story. And I, I do think that what you said is true, that the characters reveal that to you. Yeah. Um, I, I know who Sonia is. I know how she wants to present herself and I know where she wants to go. You know, she wants to be, um, you know, a great homicide detective and being in PR, even if it's kind of a bump up the ladder is, you know, it undermines her with the rank and file. So it's actually a punishment. But could she say I'm being punished? No, she would have no recourse to do that. Yeah, it, it, yeah, no, but I get it though, because, you know, that's not what she wants to do, you know? And then it's always that question, well, how's anyone gonna take me seriously that I'm a, a good, use, like you said, homicide detective or, or could be a good homicide detective? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so stepping away from your book, that's cool to hear the fourth book <laughs> um you offer writing courses on your website on your website mm -hmm. and i've signed up for mystery writing mastery um can you tell our, our listeners about the various courses you do offer absolutely um back before the unpleasantness of COVID, I used to teach a seminar. It was a one-day seminar called the Mystery Writing Masterclass. And I basically gather people in a room. I would rent the room. And we just talk about all of the aspects of writing a mystery novel, from how many suspects you should have to how to come up with characters, where to start, how to begin your novel, all of that kind of stuff, uh, dialogue. And it was really fun. And then COVID hit and 
I couldn't do that anymore. And it was just such a bummer. So I looked at uh, a website called Thinkific uh, that offers online courses. And they have a really cool structure where you go through the videos and you sort of, you know, you just sort of check off um, each lesson. And it's the closest I thought to capturing the same material in a digital format. Uh, so I have that original course, which is now called Mystery Writing Mastery, just because there's this, you know, incredibly expensive masterclass thing out there, which um, I, I think is more entertainment than teaching, but um, I, I just wanted to call it something different. Um, and that's sort of the, the flagship course. Um, I have a free course on there too, called Beginning Your Mystery, which is basically just the first unit of Mystery Writing Mastery. And it goes over two things which I think are really important, which are where do you find ideas, right? Like where do you begin writing? And then also how does the novel itself begin? How does your story begin? So looking at the first paragraphs. Uh, and then there's now a third course, which is on the noir short story, focusing on darker fiction and short stories and flash fiction, which um, just came out a couple months ago. So those are the three that are on there. Um, it's mysterywritingmastery.thinkific.com. You can also just go to my website, samweeb.com, and it, uh, it'll take you there. But um, they're both delivered um, asynchronously, so you can do it at your own time. Mm -hmm. And um, you can email me with the exercises that I give you so you can get feedback on your story if you get the short story uh, one. And... Um, you get to work on that with, it's as close as I can get to that actual seminar. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, you know, I've been writing a very, very, very long time, but, um, you know, I always want to learn. That's, that's when I saw, I was going through, when I was looking at, when I was researching you, right. And in, in pre preparation for this, uh, podcast, <laughs> And then I saw the courses and I thought, what's this, you know, and I started looking at them and I thought, okay, this is cool. You know, cause I, you know, Sam, the day, I hope this day never comes. But my, my view is the day I stop learning about writing the day is the day I stop. You know, I always want to learn, always want to learn something new and, and be, and be better. Right. So that's why. You know, I don't have this ego thinking that I know it all. Hell no, right? You know? <laughs> and I tell you, writing a short story that 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 uh, that that's that's a whole different beast. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, I do have a question. It's still kind of tying into the courses you offer, and there was. A head, I won't say a headline, but there was a link and the, the question had to do with character arcs and it was to change or not to change. And I started thinking, so when should, when, when, like I thought to myself, okay, well, so when does a character, should a character arc not change? And like, would it be, when would it be beneficial for a character arc? not to change. So I, I was curious about that. Well, this gets back to um, 
the different subgenres of crime fiction, really, because there are famous detectives that never changed. Yeah. They're always the same age. And there is something kind of nice about that. I mean, you can dive into any, um, oh, off the top of my head, who, who doesn't age? Um, Jeez. Uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes? Yeah, Sherlock Holmes is a great example. I mean, well, actually, no, he does age. He ends up as a beekeeper. Um, but there, there are lots of detectives where they're pretty much the same book to book. There, there isn't a massive shift. Right. Um, and then, and then there are other characters where each book kind of builds on the next. And um, I try to do that in a way where you can pick up Helen Gone without reading the others and know who this character is. Yeah. Um, and then read the other ones to figure out how he became who he is. Okay. Okay. No, because like that's all. That's I guess that's one thing I've always been on. Is I'm always thinking about is character arc, right? Character arc and a series arc too, right? So when I saw that, like it, it made me kind of kind of sit back and think. Okay. Okay. So I get to ask you my really fun. I think it's a fun question. Um, I always save this one to the end. Okay. You and your character, Dave, decide to go for pizza on Commercial Drive. Now, you pick the pizza place on the right. <laughs> and there's a people, there's a reason why I say that. Okay, you have to read the book. Okay. And Terry Rhodes cuts in front of you. So what do you and Dave say? And please don't give me an answer like, do you want anchovies on that pizza? <laughs> <laughs> what do we say to each other? No, what do you say to Terry when he cuts in front of you? Oh, I don't, I don't know if I say anything. I think we just look at each other and decide to go for Thai food or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good, good, good answer. Okay, Sam, so is there anything you'd like to add? Like, Anything that we haven't covered or? Well, Helen Gone uh, is out in Canada already, and it comes out officially on March 8th in the States. Um, please do pick it up and give it a, a look. Um, if you go over to samweeb.com, my last name is W-I-E-B-E, -E, um, you can sign up for the newsletter where you get a little bit of insight into my process and any news, things like that. Um, there is also a film and TV uh, deal now in place. So if you want updates on whether or not Wakeland will ever reach the silver screen or whatever they call it now, the small screen, um, you can sign up for the newsletter and uh, find out about all that uh, first. Um, other than that, thank you. And um, it's been a real pleasure, Joanna. Thank you. Good. That's awesome news. Way to go. Thank you. Oh, okay. Well, Sam, that's, the, I feel like I got a scoop. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, Sam, well, thank you very much. And my dog behaved somewhat. I've, I've, I've got him on my chair now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, you have a good day. Thanks so much. Okay. Okay. Bye, Sam. Bye-bye.